Welcome to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics blog. I am Adam Motenko. With me, as always, my twin brother, Josh Motenko. That's right. We got the draft junkie deep dive and Sally sells seashells by the seashore. Say those three (laughs) times fast. It's our tongue twister episode about the draft. I'm excited. Mike Minkoff is without, not with us today, but we have a special guest, Coach Spins, Adam Spinella from Celtics Blog, from YouTube. He was with us last year to talk about the draft. Adam, thank you for joining us again. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I know if there's room for two Adams on the podcast, I will do my best to represent myself uh, and live up to the name. <laughs> Always more room for more Adams, as far as I'm concerned. We're going to hit uh, a general overview of this draft's quality. We're going to talk about whether we think the Celtics might have a, a chance of trading into the draft, into the first round of the draft this year. The Celtics are slated to pick number 45 in the second round. And we're really going to spend the most of our time talking about expectations and needs from the Celtics uh, in this draft and specific guys that we think uh, we're, we're interested in, in having the Celtics target. So let me first ask Josh, let, uh, let me start with you. Do you have any quick initial thoughts on the general overview of the quality of the draft this year compared to other years? Yeah, I think this draft is one of the deeper drafts that I can remember. Um, and I've been looking at the NBA draft from a deep dive perspective since being at NBADraft.net in 2003 or five or whenever that was. Um, so I think that also this draft is deep on certain types of players. There's a lot of perimeter length guys like 6'8", six, 6'9", six, who can do a little, uh, who, who can kind of operate in switchable systems and play on the perimeter on both ends of the ball. And I think that's really exciting for the first round. And some of those guys could potentially drop into the second round. Um, and then there's also a lot of bigger point guards uh, that are kind of the lesser known or lower level prospects in this draft, not necessarily at the top of the draft. But I think, I actually think this draft is deep in and guys who can be secondary facilitators or, or backup point guards who have a little bit more size to them. So I think that's actually really lucky for the Celtics this year. Adam, how are you seeing it, Coach Spins? You know, it's a, it's a draft where I think it's really, really heavy at the top. And in terms of depth, you know, I try to go through my board and figure out how many guys have essentially first-round grades that I would feel comfortable going for them in the first round. And Got to about 36, 37, maybe 38 names on there. So a decent amount of depth in this class. Um, I think the the backcourt area is really versatile and deep in this year's class in terms of how it fits the modern game. You know, I think gone are the days of just having a pure point guard who plays with the ball in his hands but doesn't shoot or somebody who's just an off-ball guy and does no self-creation. You know, now we're able to to thread the needle and get guys who can really thrive in, in both areas. And, and that's something that, especially in the later parts of that first round, I think is really, really deep. Um, one area I think this draft falls off in comparison to maybe a couple prior years, and, and this may not be what Celtics fans love to hear, is right around that like 45, 46 mark uh, in the draft. I, I don't think that there's a ton of guys that I have expectations of being, you know, the, the guys that we maybe – overthought and uh and didn't put up on our draft boards that are either undrafted or really end of the second round that wind up sneaking into rotations i don't really see that depth in this class whereas Mm -hmm. i I agree with the initial point there that there is a a decent amount of of uh of depth within the first round and, and that talent pool being a little more nba ready as well as just uh 
just overall a lot of guys that might get first-round grades. Well, the Celtics traded away their first-round pick this year in the Kemba Walker for Al Horford deal. What are the chances, Adam, that you see them trading, trying to trade back into the first round to get a player uh, in that range that you were describing of where the talent lies here? You know, it's it, it depends on what they are going to be able to get for a guy like Tristan Thompson, right? They're kind of out of mm-hmm. other assets to be able to trade into the first round. And I think the, the big name that you look at is Thompson for somebody that might be be moved. Because if you believe that Al Horford and, and Robert Williams are kind of the, the front court pairing, then Thompson becomes a little bit extraneous. Uh, I don't see him necessarily netting a first round pick out there. And, you know, maybe you can attach a Carson Edwards or somebody that uh, another franchise might want to take a, a flyer on as a young guy. But at this point, I think it's it's more so about Boston's lack of assets that would get them a first-round pick as much as it would be their desire to, to get somebody, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I my thinking on this is it's, I think Brad Stevens did not like all of the youth he had on last year's team. I don't think they're trying to add a lot more young players. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if they tried to trade the 45 pick um, so I, I would not expect this team to, to draft a first-round pick this year. I think they want to develop the players they already have. Josh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's obvious that we, we're all, we've we all been saying for a long time how we don't need any more super young guys on this team. Um, the fact remains, you know, we, we do have draft picks and do need to draft players. So if you can get a guy who's more ready, I think that that's more the Celtics' style. Um, but... If you take a guy who's got a little bit of upside, maybe he slipped further than he should have. I mean, as a draft, Nick, I'm not going to be upset about that. I think that there's always, no matter how many times you say we don't need more young guys, there's always room for somebody if you feel like he's got some upside uh, but isn't necessarily ready, especially at pick number 45. I mean, So that limits our expectations of, of what to expect from this draft. Uh, and, and when we think about those expectations, when you look at the needs that this team has right now, in the past, I felt like you could take those ideas and compare them with Danny Ainge's draft history. You knew that he liked small, tough, gritty, athletic point guards or, or, or generally guards. Um, you knew that he valued wings uh, since they are so valuable in today's NBA um, you know that he liked shoot, shooting big men. Um, but So you could kind of uh, not predict, but have some sense of, like, I think Danny Age would like this type of a guy. Um, we, he's gone. I don't think we know uh, what Brad Stevens likes. We certainly don't know what his tendencies are around drafting. Um, and we don't know the level at which the previous uh, regime, guys like Mike Zarin or others who were involved in in draft decision-making or even Brad Stevens, we don't know who's really making decisions here um, and how much say different people have. So it's much harder to predict that. When uh, Coach Spins, what what are you hoping the Celtics get out of this pick? Let's assume that they're just stuck with the 45 and and that's it. What are you hoping they get out of it? I think that uh, realistic expectations kind of dictate that you're not going to get a lot of impact in year one from anybody that you draft in the second round, particularly this late in the second round. So what I would want to see is 
the obvious long-term plan of whoever they're fitting in being somebody that plays really well alongside of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Really, that's the the main criteria for me. And you can go a lot of different directions in that way. It can be more of a stretch-shooting frontcourt guy who is a little bit switchable. Maybe it's another wing that just allows them to stockpile, like you said, a really valuable position in today's game and have so many switchable options to throw out there at one time. Maybe it's a a guard who alleviates some of those primary creation responsibilities when one of the the two rests, but also has the length, size, and perimeter acumen to be switchable and play off ball. So there are a lot of different things that I would look for, but it has to make sense long-term next to Tatum and Brown. And I think length Mm -hmm. and -and catch-and-shoot impact are the two most evident areas that, that really build a foundational group around Tatum and Brown. Josh, what are you hoping for from the Celtics? Yeah, I, I'm I'm in total agreement with Coach Spins on this one. I think you need a complimentary piece. I'm hoping that it's going to be someone who brings a little bit of grit. And um, I think that I'm tired of having guys on the team who are too small defensively. So I'm hoping that we get somebody who's 6'5 and above. So let's get into the players that you guys have on, on your list that you think they should target. So when you think about length, catch and shoot, coach spins, who, who are you thinking about here? Who should fans be paying attention to and watching YouTube clips of? Yeah, or if you it's were good. picking coach spins, who's like who are you most excited about if they dropped to pick 45? Yeah, I think a lot of it uh, down at 45 is about who's available, right? It's really hard to forecast who might fall. How much stock do you put into the mainstream mock drafts as being – you know, consensus feelers for where guys are likely to land versus them putting their own spin on it and and using their opinion. So getting a a gauge for market value is always tough to do from an external perspective. But one guy who's routinely mentioned in the early to mid, maybe even later parts of the second round that I love and actually have a first round grade on is Jeremiah Robinson Earl. My guy. Villanova. Yeah, huge fan. Um, And it comes down to a lot of different factors for me first and foremost jre is raved about as a as a person off floor his character his attention to detail winning mentality and focus the the player comparison that i always kind of have with him is less about his playing style and more about the longevity that this guy has stuck in the league it's jared dudley like you're getting a guy who's going to come in here and do all the dirty work and never need the spotlight on him, but have a 10, 15-year NBA career because he's so good at all those little things and pays attention to detail. Um, you know, that's JRE. He's he's six foot nine, doesn't have great length, did not test very well athletically at the combine, and a lot of those factors combined with the fact that he shot thirty below 30% from three his last year at Villanova are really causing some people to sour on him. Uh, I try to focus a little bit more on the things he does instead of what he doesn't physically or naturally have to his game. Really switchable defender. Uh, His technique is perfect. And from a coaching perspective, we actually use tape of Robinson Earl and how he accepts switches, communicates, stands Mm -hmm. in position, has his arms out at all times, like the fundamentally sound defensive player that you would always want. On the offensive end, he was asked to do a little bit of everything at Villanova, and I don't think that's his role in the NBA. He's best in a spot-up role. He was actually 73rd percentile on catch-and-shoot jumpers in the NCAA last year, which is a, a pretty good mark. Um, you know, I, th- I think you look at the the three-point shooting number itself, and you tend to sour on him, 
but just standing in corners, you know, being a switchable defender who can guard threes, fours, and and maybe even be that small ball five in the same way that Grant Williams can be. Um, I think there's a lot to like about Robinson Earl. He's probably the most, you know, instant impact guy that you you would end up getting at 45. But I think there's a, a higher ceiling than most do because. He focuses on just being a shot maker. He does all the little things on defense. He's he's the definition of a gritty, great teammate role player, and I love those guys. Yo, I love that. He's number one on my list as well. And I, so, you know, first of all, I love that you picked a guy that I agree with because I don't know if we're going to agree on some of these other names that we mentioned. <laughs> uh, but if he if he drops, which I all, I agree, it's it could be likely. I mean, I had him as the. 21st or 22nd overall guy on my list. I think he's one of the most ready, NBA-ready players in the entire draft. Um, he's going to make Grant Williams very expendable because he actually has the size to do the things that we need. The guy who plays next to Tatum, who's who's got to be the tougher guy, but not necessarily the center. Um, that kind of moves everybody down a position, puts Jalen Brown at the two and Tatum at the three, so they don't have to play up. I think that he can... He's a guy who even could be a potential starter and if certain guys are injured uh, throughout his rookie year. And if you look at the guys who come out of Jay Wright's Villanova system recently, um, you know, Sadiq Bey being the last one who I feel like we maybe missed on last year, he, Jeremiah Robinson Earl can kind of come in and be that, the, the Sadiq Bey for this team. Um, but even like DiVincenzo, Mikhail Bridges, Jalen Brunson, like even Eric Paschal, all these guys kind of, exceeded expectations a little bit more than um, I think projected as NBA players. And I think it comes down to the, the fundamentals that Jay Wright teaches. He has his bigs driving into the paint and coming to a running stop like like guards are taught at the JUCO and D1 level. And he's doing that with all of his players, including his bigs. And oftentimes those bigs play inside out and are facilitators as well. And you saw that from Sadiq Bey at that same position. And now Robinson Earl is kind of the next in line of those NBA ready guys from from Jay Wright. So I, I love this pick. Adam, do you know who he is? Adam Motenka. Nope. So yeah, you're he's, why, he's why a fan. You, why are you outing me? <laughs> no, you've got some guys, I'm sure. Um, I do. He's he's gonna he's a potential fan favorite too because of the way he hustles and the details that he has. Adam Spinella, have you? I know it's the exhibition games of the uh, Olympics. Um, but have you been upset, like from the coach's perspective, seeing crucial plays at the end of games defensively where Zach Levine and Jason Tatum have not come together all the way on switches and, and therefore not communicated all the way and let guys uh, slip back door for open layups, like with, within two minutes left in the entire game to get some losses here. Have you been, yeah, has your coach brain been out like that? <laughs> Anytime I see stuff like that, it drives me bonkers a little bit uh you know the, i think the fundamentals that, that i was taught anyway with accepting a switch is talk and tag you want to yeah. communicate the switch and be close enough to tag your your teammate so that you can't get split can't get slipped um and the ball doesn't find a way through to the direct line of the basket so uh yeah definitely watching some of those is frustrating and that's where the precision and the intensity with which you know robinson earl plays each possession is, is so attractive to me um you know, you never know from a coaching perspective which play is going to be the one that makes or breaks your game. You know, if you lose by two, everyone wants to look back at those final two or three minutes, but it may end up being something in the, the first half or, you know, two minutes to go in the second quarter and you let open a, 
you know, some guy on the slip. You didn't switch that one to per, to precise, you know, exactness that you needed to. And, and Robinson Earl plays every possession with polish and with urgency. And that's from a role player's perspective, that's all you're looking for in the NBA is somebody who's just going to come in there and compete every single time, every play, no matter what their role is, no matter what time is on the clock left. Yeah, so let me go Let me go to a name that's on my list who I think is going to be a little bit more controversial from your perspective so we can get all this right. podcast interesting. Um, I've fallen in love with this guy like pretty much from the moment I saw him. Um, I think there is a place for bigger bully guards in the NBA um, you know, who, who don't necessarily shoot the ball. Like you were talking about that archetype being dead. So I think that's why this pick is controversial. But Deshaun Nix is a guy who... Is, was kind of the, the point guard and floor general holding everything together with this really young um, G League Ignite experiment, I'll call it. He's keeping everybody happy, you know, from from the Jalen Greens to the Kamingos to even, like, Isaiah Todd. And I think Knicks and Todd are two guys from that team. Everyone talks about, well, Jalen Green was playing against, you know, more grown men, and the competition level is a half step above D1 if you're talking about G League. Uh, but they're not really talking about that when they're, when Knicks or Isaiah Todd are mentioned. I think those guys are falling off the map a little bit. And Deshaun Knicks, to me, he's like you picture Lou Dort's body, and he's like Andre Miller or uh, Mark Jackson, to mention some guys from, from the 90s, like pass-first point guards who are bully guards and can do a lot on the, the stat sheet, like really good rebounder for his position, really good uh, basketball IQ, great passing vision. He's kind of like a joy to watch, and sometimes I fall in love with these guys a little bit too much. But you know, that, such as love, right? Even sports love is kind of like that. Um, what do you think about Deshaun Nix? Six five, two twenty five, big boy. Yeah, he's he's. Uh, I think the kids say he's thick. I don't know. I, I may be spending too much time in a high school gym these days, but um, you know, yeah, that two twenty five, Josh. That that was fat. <laughs> Well, he's lost some weight, you know, in the last few months, and he, you know, there's there's been guys who've who've been successful uh, as, as bigger guards. Yeah, yeah if, he's, if you're he's drafting good talent, one. yeah, if you're drafting talent and and somebody who drops to the second round, I mean, Deshaun Nix was was number twenty something on the ESPN Top 100, so he's big high school uh, player. If you're drafting that late, it's there, there's a reason why for a, a player that talented. And he did not have a great team for the Ignite, uh, did not have a great season for the Ignite team. Um, and if he didn't play well because he was overweight, that's an easily fixable thing. So I'm, I'm in on that. If... Yeah, I, I like Knicks. I have him 46 on my board, so he's right in range for where the Celtics would be. Um, you know, I agree that there's a really good basketball player kind of latent within there. Um, 5.3 assists, 2.9 turnovers while playing in a pro league and making that adjustment is is really impressive. But it's the fact that he shot 17% from three uh, that was just making me kind of worry about his fit in Boston. You know, that's a really large, large deficit in terms of getting from where he's at now to becoming a competent three-point shooter. I think um, we could definitely use an injection of somebody who's creative on the second unit and sets the table for others, especially if we're building a roster that's going to be heavy on three-point shooting, right? When one of Tatum or both of Tatum and Brown sit and you just got a bunch of shooters on your team, who's going to get on the basketball? Uh, I, I don't think that Knicks is a bad pick because 
he fits that mold. Um, but I think there are other pass first guys who might be available uh, at, at that kind of selection, maybe even a Jason Preston out of Ohio who projects a little bit higher as a, a three point shooter over the course of his career. Yeah. I just love Nix's toughness. You know, he plays like a truck. He's from Alaska. He's, he's, I think that our supporting cast needs an injection of grit and toughness. Um, so that's why I'm all on, on the Jeremiah Robinson Earl train. Um, but I don't mind being the only person on Deshaun Nix Island here at Celtics blog either. Who's, so would Preston be your next guy if you were to pick your neck, your number two guy that you're excited about, Adam Smell? I, I think Preston is right on the, the prefaces of either second or third on my list. We'll, we'll talk about him now just because we're talking about those creative point guards. Um, about 6'4", maybe 6'5", with a, a long wingspan. He doesn't look like your typical point guard. Um, but in terms of feel for the game and polish in the pick and roll, Preston is really far ahead of most second-round draft picks where he's great at those little techniques that we got used to seeing last year from um, from Tatum when he was partnered with with Daniel Tice, right? Like waiting for the, the snaking of the screen and, and waiting for your screener to come down and seal the man off in the lane. Preston is unbelievably patient in the pick and roll, and he does so as a, a creator for others more than a scorer for from himself. Um, you know, really fascinating story, too, just to, to kind of backtrack a little yep. bit. Uh, this is a guy who, you know, if you haven't heard his, of him or, or seen his background, look him up. There's some amazing articles that have recently come out about the fact he was an NBA blogger for a little bit and didn't have any offers coming out of a high school and really f- just found his way to Ohio based on um, some really flimsy tape and, and just a ton of hard work and upside. Like the amount that he has persevered through by the amount of times he's been told no as a basketball player, really makes you want to root for the kid. Um, I can't quite come to grips with, and this is probably why he's a second-round pick and not a, a surefire first-round guy, the fact that he's not a very good pull-up scorer out of the, the pick-and-roll. Um, you know, We've gotten used to here in Boston watching some really good shooting point guards, whether it was Kemba Walker, Kyrie Irving, Isaiah Thomas. Like, these are guys who, with the ball in their hands, they force defenses to come out and guard them behind the three-point line. And I really fear having a facilitator and a pass-first guy who teams can consistently go underneath ball screens against. And it kind of you know, brings you back to the Rondo days and makes you think about just how good of a playmaker you have to be in order to overcome that. So, you know, I like Preston's size. He shot the ball well in a catch-and-shoot standpoint, but... Off the dribble, I certainly have my uh, my questions. I don't, I don't know what you guys think of him if you've you've seen much about Preston or, or have any thoughts, but that's kind of where I stand right now. Yeah, I think he's a guy who, just like everybody else, when he came to the D one level, like they were looking at him skeptically. Like, can he can he really play at this level? Now that he's proven as a self made guy that he can do that, uh, you know, and and have great success in the tournament from a mid major program as their team leader. Um, he's a guy who can you know, rebound, pass, and uh, score the ball a little bit and, and kind of lead, lead with patience. So, um, shoot, I mean, at pick 45, you can't be too picky, I think. Um, as excited as I'm getting about some of the names on my list, if we end up with a Jason Preston, he's still a big point guard who, who can kind of bring a steadying ball-handling presence to the second unit. And so I'm, I'm all about that. But, you know, I do look at him skeptically, like, well, now can he actually play at the NBA level? You know what I mean? 
Yeah, no doubt. No doubt about that. And, and you know, if, if comparing Preston to Knicks, I think Preston has a little more athletic upside because he's taller and longer. I think Knicks is, plays a little bit more like a bowling ball yep. and has that grit and toughness, whereas Preston's kind of grit has come through perseverance and just how cerebral he is. Um, that's not to say Knicks isn't really high IQ prospect, but that's, you know, the main appeal of Preston in my mind. Yeah, there's, while we're on the, the topic of these 6'4", six, 6'5", six, point guards, are there other guys like that that you feel like are, are legit point guards? Um, there's three guys who, you know, I don't know if they'll drop or not, but David Duke from Providence, RJ Nemhard um, from TCU, and David Johnson from Louisville are all kind of, I think, guys that I've, I've been intrigued by mildly because they're just really steady and, and can, can be bigger point guards who could be a steal, I think, in the second round. What do you think of those guys, and do you have others who, in that positional situation on your list? I think David Johnson is the only other name that I would circle as being within drafting range at 45. Um, I wouldn't touch Nemhart or Duke. That range is more so because, you know, Duke is a little bit older of a college prospect and really, really struggled to finish at the basket. That's a, a huge bugaboo to me. Yeah. One of those uh, translation signs from college to the pro level that typically doesn't fail is if a guy's a poor finisher in college, he's going to struggle finishing at the basket in the NBA. And, and those guys, um, you know, I have a hard time trusting to, to be on the floor if they're not going to really be able to score on any level. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm out on Duke. I think Nemhard's really interesting, but I haven't heard his name come up much in the, you know, middle part of the second round. I think he's a little bit more of an undrafted flyer guy and yeah. think that the, the Celtics would be wiser to, to maybe hold on and, and try to negotiate with his agent, see if we can get him to camp and, and go through that process, as opposed to you know, grabbing him over somebody else that might be available at 45. But Johnson, uh, kind of one of those bewildering prospects to me, because freshman year and sophomore year were almost like Jekyll and Hyde, so to speak. Um, really struggled to shoot, struggled to stay on the floor at all as a freshman. And looked better as a sophomore, much better catch and shoot guy. Had uh, a, a couple games where he was really, really strong, and, and had you know pro glimpses. But he also had, I think, two or three games where he had six or more turnovers. And it's the erratic nature of somebody like that that would lead me to not trust them at least early in their career. And if you look at holes on the Celtics roster right now, I think the one area that everybody can agree they just need a body at for insurance purposes is the point guard spot. So uh, if we're taking a guy who's really erratic there and may have to be thrown into even a few minutes early in his career, I just think Knicks or Preston, based on what they've shown, the polish that they have handling the ball, uh, are more trustable options than a guy like Johnson. Yeah. So th then there's two other names, six, five guys who I see more as shooting guards they're both on my list and on your list. Number one is Quentin Grimes from Houston, who I see as kind of like a Dylan Brooks type player. Um, gets to the free throw line at a really high clip and is just kind of a pro scorer, in my opinion, but um, doesn't necessarily jump off the page or the floor athleticism-wise for the NBA level. Um, the other guy is Joel Ayayi from Gonzaga. What do you think of those two guys, and, and which one are you higher on? If he falls. Um, yeah, yeah. So you'd asked earlier if Preston was the number two preference for me. He's kind of number three. Number two is Grimes. 
I yeah. am a, a big fan of Quentin Grimes, but almost for different reasons than you mentioned. Um, hmm. I don't necessarily see Grimes being a, a great scorer at the NBA level. I think he's a, a fine catch-and-shoot prospect and somebody who's good coming off off screening actions. Um, so that versatility to knock down three-pointers in different ways matters a lot to me. I, I think it, it unlocks the offense, that movement shooting just makes the defense think a little bit more about where their man is, which means they're less attuned to Tatum and Brown on drives, and, and that ends up that split second ends up mattering. Um, you know, Grimes a really really good defender. That's to me his best trait is the ability to come in at six foot five with long arms and maybe guard up a half position, be able to play the two or the three. Um, you know, he's a, a really good rebounder for his size, and that's something that that I value quite a bit. You know, somebody who, when we come in and we're switchable and we're playing a lot of wings instead of maybe a true four and a true five, uh, we need to rebound the basketball. And Grimes is fantastic in those areas. You look at his highlights, and he's certainly a polished scorer in a lot of ways. And, and look, he has the number one option at Houston, led a team to the final four. Like, there's no doubt he's a, he's a guy that can put the ball in the bucket. But what he showed at the, the draft combine was – a lot more of a willingness to play a smaller role, move the basketball, know when to pick his spots, and do all the nitty-gritty things. Now, similar to, to Robinson Earl, I think there's appeal to that with the Celtics team, especially in the second round. Like Instead of swinging for the fences, let's just get a guy who's going to go out there and hit a single more times than not. Yeah, and what do you think of Ayayi? I guess his name would be pronounced Joel Ayayi since he's originally from Paris, France. What do you think of him? Yes, jo- Joel Ayayi, um, not really high on my board right now. He's kind of knocking on that like late 50s, early 60s range, and I can't really pinpoint what it is that I don't love. Um, so instead of trying to sit here and tell you why he's he's not my favorite guy, I'll, I'll highlight some of the things that a lot of people love about him and why he gets mentioned even as a fringe first-rounder on some people's draft boards. Um, excellent cutter. That's... Uh, probably his most standout skills. He knows how to move without the basketball. He does so in relocation attempts on the perimeter from three, as well as knowing as soon as his man turns his head, he's cut into the basket and is able to quickly catch and finish. Uh, for a smaller guard, he's got, I shouldn't say smaller guard, he's about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, but he has really long arms, which is going to allow him to either guard up if he's playing the two or pester a lot of point guards if he's guarding the one. The main appeal about him from his time at Gonzaga was the hybrid combination of playing on-ball and off-ball. Statistically strong as a catch-and-shoot threat, made it a few shots off the bounce, which gives you intrigue. Um, you know, he wasn't a high-volume scorer at all during his time at Gonzaga because of the nature of their offense and how many shared reps they had with really four pro-style type of players on that team, including him and uh, potential top-five pick Jalen Suggs. So um, the the question is... Is he going to pop more at the next level when he has the ball in his hands more frequently and we just didn't see all the skill that he has because he had to share his role? Or did that system bring out the best in him? He's a little bit more of an off-the-ball guy, and because of the attention paid to elders and the spacing he played in, he was able to thrive more than he you know, necessarily might as the focal point in the NBA level. I'm not sure how I stand on that, but uh, it's certainly a debate that because I don't have a definitive answer – I'm not willing to be his staunch advocate at 45, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, my big thing with him is can he play the one at the NBA level? Because at 6'5", 180, yeah. Yeah. I just don't know if he can 
I see his game as more of like a, an RJ Hampton type of game with maybe a little bit less bounce where, like you mentioned, he's a great cutter, can play off the ball, um, but is more of a two and not necessarily a guy who I'm excited about as a backup point guard. And I'd rather my two be, be bigger and my point guard be that size. Especially within the Celtics kind of framework that they're aiming for as a team, having more length and switchability, two, three, four, as opposed to one, two. I'm not sure how, how IIE fits in that. And again, if we're talking about instant impact and trying to figure out who fits in with this team the next year or two, having somebody with polish to play with the ball in their hands when we don't really have a, a proven point guard other than Marcus Smart, who's less of a point guard and, and more of a like yeah. a combo smaller wing. Um, you know, I don't know if IIE gives you enough faith in his resume to say, yeah, come in and here, 12 minutes a night, handle. Like, I, I, I don't know, I'm not there yet. Yeah. So the next guy on my list that I'm that I'm I'm still like thinking these are guys that I would actually be really excited if the Celtics got with this pick uh, is Herbert Jones from Alabama, six eight, two ten. He's a athletic lefty slashing wing, but I I kind of see some point forward abilities in him. He can guard one through four. He's got a high motor. He was SEC Player of the Year and Defensive Player of the Year. I think the last guy to do that was Robert Williams the third. Um, and I just really love his versatility. I, I, you know, obviously these names were better players because we're talking about a guy who could slip to 45. But the type of game he has reminds me a little bit of Karolenko or Stacey Ogman, someone who can really defend and um, needs to get stronger, but has some, some flashes on the offensive end of being able to pass with vision and handle it a little bit, um, especially like off of a rebound push in the break. And, and a guy who fills up the stat sheet with steals and blocks and is kind of all over the place, too. What are your thoughts on Herbert Jones? Are you also excited? Uh, Herb Jones, the human Swiss army knife. Yeah, um, I, I think there's so much to like about what he brings to the team defensively. That switchability, we talked about two through four, having positional versatility is really important. Jones certainly checks those boxes. NBA-ready defense in terms of combination of the positions that he guards on ball with the IQ and awareness off ball, I think he checks that box as well. That was the most impressive part to me about Jones. I knew with his athletic profile when I dove into the tape on him that he was going to be a really good on-ball defender. He has length and quickness and a great frame. And, and as a four-year player at Alabama, just had so much more seasoning than a lot of the guys that he went up against in the SEC. But he blew me away with his help defense awareness, responsibilities, and just overall basketball IQ on that end of the floor. Uh, I think that there's certainly a, a, a world in which he comes in and makes a positive impact for small stretches on a team as a rookie. Um, he does have an Achilles heel, though, and it's a three-point shooting. Yeah. And it's gotten better, but he made 13 threes as an underclassman the first three years when he was at Alabama, 13 threes. And he went 20 of 57 this year, which is 35%, and gives you a lot of faith in him. But he was 23% for his career coming into the year. And it's just it's one of those things where is he a pretty good handler, creator in the full court, and, and has some of that point-forward tendencies? Yeah, he does, but he's very left-hand dominant. And he's also probably not a good enough scorer to mandate having the ball in his hands for long stretches of time. So you combine that with the fact that he's not a great shooter, uh, it's becoming harder to find the spot to, to hide him. 
on the offensive end, I think he ends up being a little bit more uh, utility-wise and how he would be used by the Celtics, almost like Andre Robertson was for the Oklahoma City Thunder, mm-hmm. where if you're okay with having him come in, stand in the corner, know when he needs to back cut, crash the offensive glass, um, but you just need him on the floor for his defense, I think he can fulfill that role, especially because he's really, really high IQ and good in transition. But look, there's going to be a flaw or two with every single guy that we talk about because it's the 45th pick. Those are the guys that you're getting. Um, it just comes down to which side of the floor Brad Stevens, Ime Udoka, and the Celtics want to try to develop. Would they rather get a guy who's offensively talented and just work on them in the weight room and teach them defense? Or do they want a guy who is really defensively ready to go, might be able to make an instant impact, but has flaws in their game offensively that they may need to mask. So um, that's the the real guessing game at this point. So let's talk about that for a second because, you know, I get suckered into, especially with this draft for some reason, there's a lot of guys who can't shoot but have other skills that could potentially make up for it. And so, you know, we all want guys, we all want five guys on the floor who could shoot the three. But if you're going to take a guy in the draft who you know can't, what are you willing to put up with? Like Or like what will make up for that? And to me... If you got size and you fill up the stat sheet and you can handle and facilitate, like a Herb Jones or a Deshaun Nix or even a Jeremiah Robinson Earl, who I'm not that, you know, convinced that he can hit threes as well. Like, if you can make up to up for it with with grit and toughness and playmaking and with size, to me that makes up for lack of a jump shot. And I don't know if other if if most other people would put up with that, you know, because they just need guys who can shoot. And so maybe nothing is going to make up for that. What's your stance, Coach? Yeah, My stance right now is it's about holistic team building. So if we're watching the NBA Finals, if we're watching the playoffs and how the best teams are playing right now, every team has about four guys that can shoot the three on the floor at a time. Uh, if not, then they have three and an all-star who might not be able to, right? A guy like Giannis, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um if you're going to commit to having somebody one through four who's not a really good shooter and you expect to be on the floor in crunch time or playing alongside a superstar, I think you need a legitimate stretch five. Um, I think Horford is a little bit of that guy. His, his percentages are solid, albeit not great, and he has a slower shot, so he has to functionally be you know, put in, in positions where his shot can succeed. Uh, but Robert Williams, Tristan Thompson are not those guys. They're not stretch fives. So to me, we have to think about the long-term plan here, right? Horford's probably not going to be around for forever. So the more, I guess the more important question is, can we ever find somebody that's a stretch five or commit to playing small enough on the perimeter and, and make sure that our point guard can shoot so that we would have one slashing wing who plays 15 to 20 minutes a night and ends up being that guy? Because that's honestly what we have to talk about now. I know a lot of these second-round picks are probably never going to end up playing big minutes on a, a rotation for a playoff team, but you draft them with the the hope and the intent that they eventually develop into being that guy. And that's where with, with a guy like James or Dacian Nix, where I just they're so far away and there's so much proof to them struggling to hit shots from the perimeter that is it worth that risk for them? Maybe but you can only have one or two of them on your roster. Otherwise, you're just catering around role players, and, and that rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. Adam, what do you, Adam Motenko, what do you think of, of, like, what would you put up with if you got a guy on your team who you know can't shoot 
but like what other skills would you need him to be able to do or intangibles or what would make up for not being able to shoot free from your perspective? I'm with you in that I want the team to, to bring in more toughness and grit. Um, they would need to defend for sure. Um, but I think shooting lack of shooting in today's NBA is, is a challenge. I mean, we're talking about a rotation player. So if they're really good on defense, then, then I think that makes up for a lot, especially if they're only playing 15 minutes a night. Um, I don't expect whoever we pick here to, to do that early on. I agree with what Adam was just saying that this is a, you're trying to get them to develop into a, a late rotation player. Um, a guy that I think fits the mold that you guys uh, that have been talking about that I haven't heard you speak about yet is Chris Smith out of UCLA. He's a, a, a senior, but young for, for spending four years in college. He can really shoot the ball six, nine uh, long, decent defender. Uh, he tore his ACL in January uh, so he is projected as a early second, maybe mid second round pick. Um, in some mocks, he's not even on there on the list for first or second round. Uh, Adam, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on him. You know, with with Smith, I think the the injury is always a little bit scary. But if there's one thing we've learned is that you see, uh, sorry, ACL injuries aren't that debilitating over the long term. Not necessarily something to be overly cautious about um you know smith you mentioned the fact that he's a shooter in eight games this year he shot 50 percent from three uh which is a, a solid mark but he was right at 29 29 and a half percent for his first three years so i'm still yeah, th- a little bit uncertain in as a junior right yeah he, like he's trended upward every single year he's been in college but on the whole his first three years he was under 30 percent so I'm not sure how much I buy the eight-game sample of him shooting it that effectively. And again, that's that's just the worry for me, right? It's less about the injury as much yeah. as it is the kind of small sample size. Like both he and Herb Jones, have they improved? Yeah. Is there, you know, a solid chance that they turn into a, an okay perimeter threat? Yeah, there's a there's a chance of it. But at 45, if you need somebody that you know f- is going to play minutes and fit that switchable mold, I think there are enough shooting like tall shooting wings out there that, that can do the trick i love his shot mechanics i'm, I'm basing this not yeah. on the, those eight games but i mean he he lands in the same spot every single time um he, he's got a nice looking stroke his free throw percentage has also trended up and and is in i think it was 80 80 percent 84 percent this past year um was high last year also so th- those are the types of things that i think it's projectable um, and I love the trends. Um, obviously, his medicals are going to have a big impact on that. Josh, thoughts on him, Chris Smith? Yeah, to call him a great three-point shooter, I think is overdoing it a little bit because he only shot two a game, you know, two and a half this past year. And while his percentage has trended up, you know, I just don't. He's not someone who was looking for that shot. You know, he found that shot, found himself in that situation to shoot a three only two times per game. So having a guy who can knock that down when you're open like that is important. And you know, I, I see him as that, but I don't see him as a guy who's, you know, projecting to the NBA level going to be, you know, man, who knows in the Celtic system, they got big shooting threes, you know, at, at a very high clip in practice. And, and we've seen guys improve starting with Horford and, and, you know, Daniel Tice obviously became a really reliable three point shooter. So he's, he's in a good system for that, but, I like his switchability and his mobility. I just don't know if the if he's going to continue to be as mobile after the ACL. So 
I think taking a guy off of an ACL injury, you might not even need to use the 45th pick in the draft for that. You might be able to get him off of uh, just a free agent contract. Yeah, definitely. And, and I guess that's a unique segue into the question. I know you'd mentioned shooting form. Like Smith doesn't have the great numbers, but his form is pretty consistent and strong. Whereas maybe another guy that's mentioned in the second round here, like Kessler Edwards out of Pepperdine, um, has the numbers to back up over a couple of years of him being a, a pretty solid shooter at the college level. But his mechanics are weird. Like it's a, it's a strange looking shot. And I'm just curious whether, you know, that causes you to pause. Do you buy the eye test more than the numbers or, or vice versa? Where are you at when it comes to evaluating shooting? Um, I look at the feet. I look at their landing. If they're straight up and down and they're landing in the same footprints that they started their jump shot with, then I, I'm not, I actually don't worry about what happens with the hand, the guide hand, the upper body, um, as long as they're not twisting, right? So, but that's going to that's gonna create a, a different footprint landing. So to me, that's the big key. Um, and you got some guys who I think, like LaMelo Ball is a perfect example uh, of a guy who's, who's got weird mechanics and I wouldn't rate him any lower because of that. I think that he's going to end up becoming a really reliable three-point shooter in the NBA across his career. Um, I think that if you get reps the same way every time, that's that's what's important. And if you're jumping and landing in front of your footprints or twisting, you're not going to get the same rep every time. So I actually don't worry about it much for, for Kessler Edwards. Um, but I question, like, what is his upside? What's the one thing he's going to do at the next level that's going to keep him in the league? in your opinion. Is it shooting? Yeah, for Kessler Edwards? Yeah. Yeah. It's not shooting. Uh, it's it's really defense and help defense. Like I think he's projectable more on that end of the floor than offensively. Like I, I don't have a really high grade on Edwards. Um, I think he's the you know Costco version of Jeremiah Robinson Earl, essentially. <laughs> uh, you know, if 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 JRE's still available, I'm definitely taking him, but you know, Edwards is, is fine positionally, decent wingspan, has proven that he can shoot the ball based on his numbers and, and all that stuff. But if he's not making shots, I don't think he gives you anything offensively. I've just not seen anything off the bounce from him. Um, and and that, that worries me a little bit. You know, I think he also kind of straddles the line of positionally versatile and tweener. Uh, I'm not really sure if he's more of a wing or a stretch four and, and kind of what the best way to deploy him is because there are certain um, – it's just a really long three-point stroke. It's really – I know he's tall and is able to get it off a lot, but there's a lot of movement going on there. And, and again, I, I agree with your assessment. It's kind of consistency over coaching. It doesn't have to look a certain way in order for it to be aesthetically pleasing for me as long as it goes in and it's the same every time. Uh, but there's just there's so much movement going on with his shot. It's it's such a violent type of release um, that I you know playing in the the WCC against probably less athletic, less size than than he'll face in the NBA. It, it does leave a little bit of a question mark in my mind. So I'm I'm not that high on Edwards. Okay. Well, is there anyone else on your list that you're high on? I think the last guy that I'd mentioned more so just as a shooting specialist is Joe Wieskamp out of Iowa. Um, really, really long, really good shooter in so many different ways. You know, you, you watch games throughout the year, you scout different guys, or you know what the perception is on somebody. 
and then you go back and you watch film and maybe you'll gain a thing or two from them that you, you didn't really see before. And uh, with Wieskamp, he has left a positive taste in my mouth because he's a little bit better of a uh, you know, pull-up shooter or somebody that can create their own when he's chased off the line than I thought he would be. Um, and I, I like that trait out of shooters. I think at the very least he is Neesmith or Fournier insurance. Now the question is, does that become redundant when we already have Neesmith on the roster and, and are likely to, or hopefully likely, to keep Fournier in free agency? I don't know if that's overkill on the specialty movement shooters, but um, I do think that value-wise at 45, he's, he's a pretty known commodity and does provide that one trait that I look for a lot right now around this core, which is length and shooting. Nice. Yeah, I I'm, I think that he's a good, solid prospect. He's a good name to end with, I think, too. I want to I wanna take us into, like, a rapid-fire section here where I'm just going to list off some names and maybe a question alongside with it just to get your opinion, Adam Spinella. And um, for those who are still listening, this is where the pod's going to go off the rails. We're going to have some names here that may, <laughs> maybe no one ever has heard of who's listening. Uh, but you can check out Adam Spinella's draft information obviously at celtics blog uh he's beloved over here and uh if you go into youtube you type in adam spinella his videos are getting several thousand hits each so doing a great job putting those together adam um from my information i'm over at musicmoviesandhoops.com i've got my big board over there and uh, uh i can't i can't claim to have the thousands of views that adam spinella has here so I'm going to ask you, we'll have you be the expert. I'm going to throw some names out. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, Derek Alston Jr., the 6'9", skinny shooter from Boise State. I don't know why I had a feeling you were going to start with him, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) glad you mentioned that. I I really like his upside. It really intrigues me. Again, the length, the shooting potential, a much better scorer than I thought. want to see him continue to develop physically, but uh, at 45, a decent upside flyer to take. Yeah, I see him as as maybe a Jalen McDaniels or a Chandler Hutchinson type player, kind of a bigger wing with length, who you know may may struggle a little bit either to adapt to the physicality of the league or, um, or defensively. Um, the next name, and obviously this is a guy with with you know, I think big upside, Jared Butler from Baylor. Two weeks ago, we weren't sure if he was even draftable because of the medicals. Now all of a sudden, you know, he put out on Twitter recently that he's. He has been cleared by the league. How much has this little medical kerfuffle, do you think, impacted his draft stock? Uh, If you're asking me, I hope it's enough to drop him to 45 because I love Jared Butler. Uh, I have him 10th on my overall big board, if that means anything. So really, really big fan because I don't think there's anything on the floor he can't do or a a reason that he would be played off the floor in any type of situation. Just really, really solid player. In terms of how this snafu with his heart condition has potentially killed his draft stock, I think it hurts only in the sense that um, he has a limited amount of time to do individual workouts for teams. And there are probably a few of them who have been impressed enough by what they've seen by other prospects that it's almost a tiebreaker that wouldn't work in Butler's favor, if that makes sense. I think that what he's shown over three years at Baylor, winning a national championship, being an All-American, 
being a 50% catch-and-shoot guy last year. Like, There's so much evidence that points to him being a good pro that he doesn't necessarily need a one-day workout with an NBA team in order to solidify the fact that he's a first-rounder. Um, but again, it's if he's up against one other guy and a team's on the fence, tiebreaker probably goes to the guy that they've had a little bit more personal interaction to work out with. Yeah, you had him 10th on your big board. I had him 16th. You know, all the focus is on his teammate, Davion, Davion Mitchell. Um, but, uh, you know, our, our guy, Jared Butler, is the one who, didn't he break the most threes ever in a championship game record with seven? I mean, he's, that, he's so that's good. a big-time stat. He's um, so, so good. <laughs> obviously, he'd be a steal. Um, Florida State is a team, you know, with, with a coaching staff that's put out some good NBA players recently. Scotty Barnes is is third on my big board and has been for three months. So he's now skyrocketing up and getting all the attention out of Florida State. But there's a couple other guys I want to bring up. Raekwon Gray, the 6'8", 260 big boy who can kind of handle it a little bit. And MJ Walker, who I think is a, a potential steal, six five two fifteen, um, kind of a, a strong-bodied wing, and in, in I don't know if he's a Desmond Bain type, like short wingspan guy, or maybe a Dion Waiters type, or Gary Neal for any old-school Spurs fans. What do you think of those two guys from Florida State? Uh, we don't mention Gary Neal on the podcast. He actually is a, a coach that I have to coach against twice a year, and he's going to kick my ass twice next year. Hey, so, uh, we're, we're, we're sensitive on the Gary Neal topic. But uh, when, it, when it comes to Raekwon Gray, I, I always laugh at this comparison, but he's like Zion Williamson with no ACLs. Totally. Like if he couldn't, if Zion couldn't jump, that's what Raekwon Gray kind of plays like. He's a Mack truck and a really good facilitator with the ball in his hands, really, really smart, but he doesn't shoot it great. And he's not a really good above the rim athlete. Um, I think there's an, an NBA player somewhere within there, and a guy that I'm really, really intrigued by. But I don't know if I'd touch him until maybe like the 50, 55 mark at the earliest. Just there's a couple other names that have probably higher upside as well as a higher floor. Uh, MJ Walker's an interesting one. You know, I, I haven't spent a ton of time watching just him. But I do agree with your assessment about Florida State guys, that they typically come in really ready to make an impact, particularly defensively. Uh, the switchable schemes that Leonard Hamilton deploys there allow his guys to not just be able to guard multiple positions on ball, but have the awareness and ability for how to move and react to different actions off it that help them survive in an NBA that's predominantly, or I guess trending upwards in terms of how many teams and players switch. So um Deep sleeper potential for both those guys for sure. Yeah, I have I have Raekwon Gray as thirty five year old Zion Williamson in my my player NBA player comp. Um, <laughs> I think I think MJ Walker is one of many guys in this draft who like you can find in the second round who can really do some things out there and and have some strength and grit and toughness. I think he could surprise some people. Um, what what is going to happen with Drew Timmy in this draft? I mean, is he going to be Trey Lyles? Or Dario Sarch, or does he have any potential to be anything more than that in the NBA? Did Timmy declare? Or did he go back to Gonzaga? I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, well, I forget. Uh, I don't have that answer. Let's <laughs> assume he's declaring. Let's. I think I thought he was a senior. Is he a junior? I think. Well, I think he was a senior that got an extra year because of the pandemic, and oh, everybody right. yeah, got that extra ability to go back. Um, yeah, if Timmy were to come out this year. I uh, I don't see him as an NBA 
caliber guy just because I think he's going to lack the elite size to mask the lack of athleticism that he's naturally gifted with or lack thereof. Um, he's, he's just caught in that tweener position that I don't think is really great for, for him as a big man. It's a little bit more overcomable when you're on the wing, but at that 4-5, you got to either have definitive size or the ability to, to move your feet on the perimeter, and he just kind of lacks both. Yeah. All right, last name, Trenton Wadford, 6'9", 240, power forward, who can handle the ball out of LSU. You know, He's a guy who can kind of has a little shake to his game facing the, his defender, but then once he gets into the post, has kind of all the up and unders and, and pivots and stuff to finish, and I think that he's potentially switchable too. What are your thoughts on, on Wadford? Yeah, king of craftiness, um, really unique offensive player. I think similar to Raekwon Gray in the fact that these are guys that are much better with the ball in their hands than off it. Uh, I don't think Watford pops as much of an athlete in the way that Gray does. Gray's not an above-the-rim, you know, dunk-on-you type of guy, but as a bowling ball, he puts his shoulder in your chest like you're going through the baseline. Uh, Watford doesn't necessarily have that to his game, but he's probably a little bit better upside as a perimeter shooter. Uh, the area that I worry about with Watford is defensively. Again, we just talked about a guy like Timmy. Does he guard fours? Does he guard yeah. fives? Like, I, I don't really know where you put Watford on that end, but I'm intrigued enough by his the totality of his offensive package that I have him as a top 60 guy on my board. Well, it's great to talk to another NBA draft geek who who's recognizes these <laughs> names as well as I. And um, For those listening, please... Have your YouTube pulled up as, you know, we should have said this from the beginning, but have that YouTube pulled up and, and check out some of these names. Adam Motenko, do you have any other guys? Well, whenever I'm looking at uh, second rounders, I'm thinking about talented high school players like ESPN Top 100 guys who are falling for one reason or the other. Uh, when you look at last year's Top 100 on ESPN, the top six guys are the top six uh, projections in this year's draft. Uh, there's a couple of other guys uh, in the top 10 who are now were would be projected as second rounders. Um, I wish we were talking about Dorchester's own Terrence Clark, who tragically passed away in a car accident. He was close with Tatum and Brown as well. Um, but two others on that list, Greg Brown, uh, 6'8 power forward um, at Texas, and BJ Boston out of Kentucky. Uh, it would be nice to see Boston on the back of a Celtics jersey. Uh, Coach Spins, thoughts on both of those players? I, I couldn't agree more uh, about the B.J. Boston thing. As a teammate of Terrence Clark's, too, I think it would mean the world to yeah. him to, to be in this city. And I know those two were, were pretty close and just a, a horrible all-around tragedy uh, for the Clark family. But uh, to get back to, to those two names, really high upside guys that have a ton of work that needs to go into them. And, you know, if the Celtics are okay with taking that risk, I'd certainly understand why you do it at 45 because they're just their overall first-round talents that need a lot of work and polish. With Boston, it's figuring out you know, where, his, where his offense kind of comes from. Like, he's long and lean and is a little bit more of a guard version of, like, Brandon Ingram in terms of body type, just wiry and long and so much longer than you think he is. Uh, but I don't think Boston's a, a primary creator with the ball in his hands. Doesn't have the consistency of a jump shot. Even though he shot it incredibly well in high school, it didn't translate his year at Kentucky. And his first step is a little bit slower. Like, he's long and can get around guys that way, but he's not overwhelmingly quick or bursty. And I think that that's going to harness him 
as a, a, a primary creator. He's fine as a secondary creator or somebody that comes off movement and, and gets going, but he doesn't have that one definitive skill that would allow him to blend in as a role player. Um, Greg Brown, kind of very similarly, like I don't know other than ath- his athleticism what type of NBA skill he kind of possesses, but at his size, the athleticism, the movement ability, and how many shots he made at Texas, uh, you want to believe in a guy like him just because of the the sheer raw upside there. Um, Brown has legendarily bad feel for the game, like one of the historically low assist rates that I've ever seen from a player who who had as much usage as he did at Texas, and that's. I think less about the polish to his game and more about the mentality. Like he was going in there to gun and to get his and saw himself as a kind of a lock to be in the first round pick. And we all have now seen what, what happens when you play that way. Like it, it's easy to catch on to the guys that aren't buying into the team first concept. Uh, that's where, you know, when you mention things like grit and toughness and buying into excelling at your role, Brown certainly has upside, but, I think the the clear downside is he doesn't reach his ceiling and struggles to buy into his role as a result. I can't let this podcast end without asking about last year's second round pick, Yam Madar, who made strides in the Israeli league this year. He's got some sizzle to his game. He's a point guard. He can pass the ball. He's uber confident. His shot improved this year, and he's feisty on defense. He is coming over... Uh, I think he's in Boston now, actually, uh, and he'll be playing on the Summer League squad. Uh, Adam, I'm curious about your thoughts on him going back to last year drafting and and, uh, whether you think he can actually make a contribution, make the team this year and make a contribution. Well, I hope he makes the team because it would really tighten up our depth at that position. So I'm just like you, very curious to see how he does in Summer League and and what type of role he's able to play against NBA-level athletes and competition. I was pretty high on Madar last year. I had him 32nd on my board. So I I did really like him as a prospect and was thrilled when the Celtics grabbed him because I I did buy into the shot-making long-term and think he's going to end up being a good three-point shooter. Uh, But again, I, I try not to you know, overthink one year's worth of development or, uh, you know, numbers from a small sample. I want to see how he does in the summer league before I'm buying in and saying, okay, now we need this guy over here. He's ready. Like it's, it's one of those things where I don't have enough context for the level of competition he's been going against to know at what point you look at his production and say, okay, now he's ready for the NBA. So that's where summer league is going to be invaluable for evaluating the DAR. And, uh, and again, hopefully he is ready and can, can come over and play a role next year. Yeah, Adam still, Spinella. Okay. Yamadar is still under contract with his Israeli team, as far as I understand it. So uh, the Celtics haven't made moves to try to buy that out yet, but, and I think that they still would have to buy that out. Um, so I think that, I think, I don't know how likely it is that he actually comes over this year. I think he's going to do another year in Israel. Uh, that's that's just my personal appearance, but it's going to be uh, great to finally see him over here in the United States, um, you know, in the summer. Well, I was just going to close here. Adam Spinella, thank you so much for joining us. You can find him on Twitter at Spinella14. You can find him on YouTube by searching for Adam Spinella. You can find his writing on Celtics blog, uh, Coach Spins, uh, 
Adam, it, it's a pleasure to do this two years in a row. Really appreciate it. You're clearly knowledgeable about, about not just the draft, but uh, basketball and coaching in general. Thanks again. And uh, thank you guys. Quick shout out to Adam Taylor. I think, you know, the top five Adams in NBA podcasting right here at Celtics blog. So <laughs> some high level Adams, in my opinion. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter at Celtics Pride Pod, or you can follow Josh at Coach Motenko. 